Good evening. So last week we started, Hannah was speaking to us last week and she started, um, her opener was, uh, has anyone watched Love Island? And um, quite controversial. I'm pretty sure that many of you did not admit to watching it, even though you do, because you're like, I only watched it once and it wasn't even for very long and it's only because my friend was watching it. And I actually think it's a really terrible show and the excuses go on and on. And some of you just unashamedly love it. And that's okay, I guess, because at least you're being honest with yourself and you're accepting it. And I would say you have nothing to be ashamed of, but I'm not sure that would be entirely true. Anyway, that's just my personal opinion, which I have to get over. But we, uh, we love information, don't we? We love knowing things about other people. And reality TV gives us just like a plethora of information about other people. We crave really, really great stories. And we like them even more whenever they're true as well. There's been a surge in the last few years of these like documentary dramas and true crime documentaries because we love this, this construct of a game that we can all participate in and, and bring our own verdict forward on. And we become like a juror from our own sofa. Like Hannah was saying last week, we like drama, we like scandal, and we love even more having a hand in the story. I don't know if um, any of you watched the Netflix show Making a Murderer. Yes, a few nods. Oh, a whistle. Wow, it's great. You really liked it. Well, you're not alone because in the first uh, week, its viewing went from 500,000 to 2.3 million in a week. In two weeks, it went to 5.5 million. And after about a, after about a month, 19.3 million people had watched the whole thing. Its viewership caused millions of people to weigh in on what they thought was right or wrong, on whether justice had been served or whether a man had been wrongly imprisoned. Because our humanity tells us to look for what is fair. And we all have our own personal justice system that we operate in. And thanks to things like Netflix, we can, we can exercise it anytime we like. But we also exercise it in our own lives as well. There's been a rise and increased um, visibility in political protests and human rights movements, right down to the things that we think are fair or are unfair in our very own lives. And sometimes we use those things for incredible good but we have no shortage of material. So we've been in this story the past few weeks of this guy called Joseph. And I don't know about you, but I find it to be not quite the story that I heard growing up in Sunday school of the guy with the colorful coat who had some crazy dreams. I feel a bit torn when I read it because it seems to hold the balance of what is just and what is unjust on a very fine line. So let's recap. Joseph is the loved and lauded son of, of uh, Jacob, who, he's a little arrogant, but he's a teenager, you know? Is teenage arrogance deserving of him being thrown into a pit and then sold as a slave by his brothers? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, but it doesn't matter because that's what happens to him. Pride, his youthful pride, gave him a great big fall. Joseph, now a slave in Egypt, he rises in the ranks. Even as a slave, he prospers. Things go kind of well for him. He does well. And some of that arrogance seems to be gone. 
he's a bit of a decent guy now. You know, he's unwavering in his devotion and his commitment to his master, Potiphar, but more importantly to God. And people could see it because it says it in the Bible. It says that they saw that God was with him. They recognized it from how he conducted himself. He refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife, which is a pretty good call. She accuses him of rape, which is very unfair and unjust. And this master, who he had trusted, so been trusted so much with, turned on him in a heartbeat and threw him in jail on the basis of a false allegation. And that's where we find him today, Joseph, back in the pit again. There's no Netflix documentaries about false imprisonment here. He is right back at the beginning, it would seem. It's kind of like pit part two. So if you turn to your Bible, if you have one with you, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 39. Genesis is right at the very beginning of the Bible, so it's easy to find. And if you don't have one, that's all right, because it's going to be on the screen behind me. So Joseph here has just done the right thing. He's refused to sleep with Potiphar's wife, and then she frames him. So this is from verse 13 of Genesis 39. When she, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in the middle of something thinking, I cannot believe I am back here again. I cannot believe that after all this, after all that I have done, I thought I'd done well this time. I thought I had figured this thing out. After all this, I cannot believe I am back here again. Or maybe I don't deserve to be back here again. Being in a pit is a bit of a recurring nightmare for Joseph. And his story reads a bit like a Marvel film. He has a big high and then a big low. And then it's followed by a big high, which leads to a big low. And right now, he is in a big low. He is back where he started again. It would be very easy for Joseph in this situation, and honestly, completely justified, to say, I cannot believe I am back here again. God, what are you doing? Why am I being punished for doing what is right? Why is it so unfair? 
Joseph's suffering is real. The injustice is real. He didn't deserve to be in prison. Our suffering is real. Suffering is a harsh reality of life and it cannot be explained away by a glib, positive soundbite. I wouldn't even try. Sometimes we can hardly believe that we are back here again. How many of you have turned to God at some point, maybe even today, and said, look at all the things I have done. I've been faithful I've said yes to this, and I've said no to that. I've worked on my stuff, and still, here I am, suffering in the place of pain. It's not fair. Joseph's story may read like a Marvel film, but its reality and our reality is much more complex and much more meandering and often at a much slower pace. Because for Joseph, he had stuck to his guns. He had done what was right. He had learned from his arrogant, youthful ways. And yet still, he was not exempt from suffering. Our conviction and our commitment doesn't always get us where we expect it to or where we want it to. Our conviction and our commitment to God sometimes doesn't change our circumstances towards something more favorable for us. No matter how much we would like it to, or I would like it to. But I wonder if we've got it a bit mixed up because I don't think it was meant to. Are we in it for the exchange? Is that what we're here for? Was Joseph in it for the exchange? I do this good thing for you, God, and then you do this good thing for me. Is that how it works? Are we in it for the exchange? Our conviction and our commitment to God, regardless of circumstance, whether in the pit or the prison of our own or someone else's making, in the very worst or in the very best of times, our conviction and our commitment to God changes us. It changes us. It changes our reactions. It transforms our perspective. It changes us. But still, while we live into that reality, we still have to face and live in the reality of suffering. So what do we do there? What do you do in the prison? Well, let's look to that passage we just read. At verse 20, it says this, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness 
and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Joseph is really down on his luck here. And I think that's probably putting it mildly. He is suffering big time with no hope of things changing. No one is campaigning for his release. I would say that the majority of people who were involved with Joseph before prison have pretty much forgotten that he existed because he was a slave. He was an important slave, but he was still a slave. He is down on his luck. He has no hope of things changing. He is suffering. There's a guy who's a pastor of a church in America, in Portland, in Oregon. His name is John Mark Comer. And he said recently that as a culture, across the span of history, our generation are the least equipped to deal with suffering than any other. We are the least equipped to deal with suffering. And quite often we kind of go three ways, he says. The first is that we we look to secularism. So we look to the culture around us. We... um, let ourselves be defined by how happy we are. And then that anything that gets in the way of that happiness is a hindrance. And so we avoid it and ignore it. Which means then that we have no framework for suffering because we don't believe that it should be a part of our lives. Even though it will. And when it comes around, we escape. We escape reality rather than doing anything about it because we just want to be happy. We look to secularism or we look to Eastern spirituality where we can separate ourselves from our feelings. Our will is greater than our emotions. And this one is really attractive because it means that you could view yourself as being higher than your suffering, as something, as if it's something that you can remove yourself from and view and address abstractly. It is not part of who you are. Or this one we will be very familiar with in Western spirituality, we fake it, don't we? We fake it. We pretend that things are going well. How many of you did that even tonight? I know that I have on many occasions. When you come into church and someone says, hey, how's it going? And you say, yeah, it's fine. It's fine, it's great. Busy, but fine. Even though you are far from fine. It doesn't allow us to sit with suffering. This kind of construct. It doesn't allow us to sit with suffering. I very much doubt that Joseph was totally okay with this recent turn of events. He wasn't heading into the prison being like, cool God, a prison, what have you got for me here in this really horrible place where really terrible things are probably going to happen to me? I cannot wait to see. Of course not, because he is not a masochist. He wasn't okay. He didn't enjoy the pain and the suffering. He didn't enjoy it. He is a human that some really horrible stuff has happened to. Accepting and acknowledging where you are does not mean that you are stopping there because you're not asked to build your house and lay your foundation in the place of suffering. But if you go in the opposite direction and ignore it 
as if it does not exist or it shouldn't exist, then any good that could come from it will be halted by your ignoring of it. It is okay to not be okay with the suffering that you have endured or are enduring. It is okay to not be okay. Acknowledge your prison. Be real about the place of your pain. I've been watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy recently. That was a very insecure segue, but I just went for it. Any Grey's fans? Yeah? No whistles that time, so clearly not massive Grey's fans, but just sort of gentle whoops. I know, I'm, I'm a little behind the times. To my shame, I have actually watched most of it before, but I'm just re-watching it, because isn't that what we do? Anyway, I've been watching a lot of Grey's, and I know that it is scripted, I know it's not real, I know that it's fictional, and I know it's all a construct to make me watch more, and I know that they put those very stressful series finales in to just like get me to the next one, but it has some incredible displays of beautiful humanity at work in the relationships on that show. I have been sucked in. I am a sucker, I will admit it. But it gets me because it's a compassion that I can relate to. It is a, a compassion that I can identify with. When one of them, Izzy, for those of you who are informed, loses her fiancé, he dies, Denny, very stressful storyline. She lies on the bathroom floor for like about a week. She doesn't move, she doesn't even change. She just lies there in extreme shock and grief. And one by one, each of her friends takes a turn to lie there with her. They get on the bathroom floor and they lie on the cold, hard tiles with their friend who is suffering. Look at this passage. But while Joseph was there in the prison, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. That's key. This is our bathroom floor moment. Right there in the midst of it, God was with him. Why is that important? Because we have a God who isn't afraid of wading into our messy lives to be with us. We have a God who gets on the bathroom floor when we are suffering, who places himself in the middle of our discomfort and our pain, in the midst of suffering. That is important. It's not just in the preparation for the suffering or when the awfulness is over that God is there. It is right there in the midst of it that God is with him still and that God is with us. Right in the place where he would be questioning and despairing right in the place where he felt alone and uncared for, confronted with the stark reality of who he was 
and nobody's slave. God was with him. God is with you. He is not intimidated by your mess or by mine. He is right there in the midst of it. So how did Joseph know that God was with him? How do you know that God is with you? It's all very well to say, and we do quite a lot, but how do you know? Because it doesn't say here that God said anything to Joseph. He didn't warn him, like, hey, in a bit, by the way, you're going to go to prison. It's probably going to be a bit rubbish for a while, but don't worry because I've got a plan and you will get out eventually and I've got a good plan for you while you're there, just FYI. No, there were no warnings. In fact, it could have seemed like God was silent here. It could have seemed like God was silent and Joseph could have stopped there. God isn't saying anything here. Therefore, he has abandoned me. He is not with me here because I cannot hear him. Have you ever experienced that? When you think, I could really do with you saying something right about now, God, if you've got anything, that would be great. And the people round about you seem to be hearing God right, left, and center into everyday situations, and you think, hey, where's my word? Where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? That is hard. That is really, really hard. But I think that we have jumped too quickly to a conclusion there. I think that we too quickly mistaken God's silence for his absence. When God is silent, does that mean that he is absent? I don't think so. Have you mistaken God's silence in your life? for his absence. I know on occasion that I have. I totally have. But over time I've realized that actually where I thought I needed him to say something, he knew that his presence was better. My friend Christine showed me this. She went to school with my brother. They, uh, they grew up together, I'd known her forever, and she showed me the power of presence. About 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago, my dad was very ill, and in the end he died. But while he was sick, we would have so many visitors come to our house, and if you've ever had a family member that is ill, you will know the influx of random people that you do not know turning up at your door, bringing like all sorts of really useful things and they meant really well, and they did look after us really, really well, but they also required a lot of chat and a lot of updates, and that gets so exhausting, and they would tell you their stories of dealing with family illness, and they would try and say lots of helpful things, and really what you wanted to say to them was like, thanks for the dinner, please go away. But my friend Christine 
she just hung out with us. She was just there. She was just there. She was with us in the midst of it, right in the middle, not actually saying anything at all. She would listen when we needed to say something. She would make us laugh whenever we really needed to laugh. And she would sit in silence when there were just no words. And I look back and I realize that we never actually asked her to be there. We never actually asked her to fulfill that role. She just, she just stuck by. She just did it. Everybody wanted to see my dad. They all wanted to say their goodbyes. And some got to and some didn't. And the ones that did, it was very quick because he was very sick. But Christine was the only non-family member to sit with us when we were with him. For ours, she was just with us, right there in the prison. Silent, but not absent. Silent, but not absent. And that tells me what God is like. That gives me a tangible experience to hold on to. God is not absent from your life. He may be silent. He may be silent. But that does not equate to absence. He knows that his presence is enough. And that sometimes there are actually no words. God is not absent from your life. This verse goes on to say that God showed kindness and he showed favor to Joseph. That he granted him favor with the prison warden. So that once again in this story, Joseph was put in charge of a lot of stuff. He's like the guy, the reliable guy that you get to do all the things. And if you're the reliable guy, then you just end up doing loads and loads of stuff. Joseph was put in charge of a lot of stuff in the prison. And, and it's interesting because, you see, Joseph didn't attribute that kindness solely to the prison warden. He knew that the kindness and the favor that was extended to him was a direct result of God being with him. His God working for him, even here in the prison. All along the way, in his meandering, sometimes, of course, terribly unexpected twists and turns of his life, all along the way, he knew that God was with him and he saw it in the kindness extended to him. You see, I think that Joseph had a very particular way of looking at things. The lens of God's will, the lens of of what God was up to, of how God was working, the lens of who God was stood between Joseph and his circumstances. 
And so his perspective changed. He viewed everything differently. And that was a choice that he made. Especially when he had every reason to view things in another way. He allowed his perspective to change. He allowed his perspective to change. He made a choice. In the first week of this series, Carl talked about another part of the Bible that speaks about suffering. It's in a book called Romans in chapter 5 in the New Testament. It's going to be on the screen behind me. And it says this from verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Or in another translation, it says, hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. And this shows us that there is something beyond the place of suffering. There is something beyond the place of suffering. Suffering can produce something. Perseverance, patient endurance is what that word means. Our pain has potential to produce something in us. And this helps us see that even in this, there can be good. And this is not about detracting from the pain or saying that it doesn't matter or that we're totally okay with it. But it helps us to understand it in a different way. And it also doesn't stop there. From that perseverance, character forms, depth, conviction deep goodness, faithfulness, something beyond ourselves. Look at how Joseph reacted in the prison. I mean, he could have been all, woe is me, this seriously sucks. But you see, this God with him thing causes him to look beyond himself. He makes a choice. He makes a choice. He knows the kindness of God in the favor that he has been given, even in the prison, and he extends that kindness to others. In the next chapter in this story, in chapter 40, we learn that he's confined with these two other prisoners from the king's staff, and he spends a lot of time with them. And one night, they both have a terrible dream. And when Joseph comes in the next day to see them, it says that he saw them and asked, why do you look so sad today? He saw them. He saw them. Joseph in prison with no reason to look out for anyone but himself and with all the reason in the world to feel very sorry for himself. Yet this God with him stuff means that he sees these men in their distress and says, why do you look so sad today? And then he helps them with their dreams. That's character. We can let God cultivate this kind of character in us, whatever stage we're at, because it's this character that leads to the hope which the Bible says doesn't disappoint. What kind of hope doesn't disappoint? Because you may say, hey, I hoped, and I have known great disappointment. I got my hopes up. And they have fallen very far. Me too. 
But you know, I think that we shortchange hope. Because hope is not just getting what you want. Why do we reduce it so? Hope is a much more robust and majestic thing. Hope is a force to be reckoned with. Hope carries on when all around would give up and stop. You will not be disappointed. And so you don't have to be disappointed here. But you do have a choice. A choice that doesn't belittle your experiences. To let your suffering grow perseverance, grow character, and ultimately grow unquenchable hope in your life. Learning to live with pain and with suffering is a long and a slow journey. But I think that if, if you don't look for the long game, then pain will pollute your life. C.S. Lewis says that pain insists on being attended to. So I attend to my pain. I recognize my suffering as real and legitimate. But I have a choice. We have a choice. We can live and breathe in the severe unfairness of it all and let everything revolve around and be defined by that unfairness or we can recognize the pain. We can attend to it. And we can choose to let God grow perseverance in us so that something comes from the place of pain. That strong and bold character is grown in the very depths of us. And woven through all of that is this fierce hope. This fierce fierce, unrelenting hope. And that hope is Jesus. Jesus places himself firmly in the midst of it all, right in the midst of us. While he was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. While we are here in our prisons, in our pains, our disappointments, our sufferings, Jesus is with us. He hasn't stopped being Emmanuel, God with us. Our conviction and our commitment to God in every storm or joy of life won't always change our circumstances because we are not in this for the continual game of exchange. If you believe in Jesus here tonight, then you have already received the greatest, most incredible exchange of all, freedom, when all we deserved was death. Forgiveness and peace when we held no right to such things. Jesus is the reason we have hope. Jesus, Jesus is the full and complete expression of what Joseph knew in the first pit, in the slave ring, in the palace, and in this prison. God with us. And that is what changes us, if we let it. 
Let me pray for us. So Jesus, we come to you again. Whether whether for the first time in a long time or whether we're in a great place with you right now, we come to you again. And we ask you to help us to show us where you are growing hope in us that will not disappoint. Hope that can change us. And Jesus, will you come and place yourself in front of us? Will you be our lens tonight? Where we would like to just look straight to our suffering straight to the hard place. Will you come and will you place yourself in front of us so that we see it through you? And will you help us to be real about our places of pain? Will you help us to be honest with ourselves, with each other, and with you? Thank you that you take us exactly as we are. You don't ask us to be anyone that we are not.